You are listening to National Security Law Today. We can't get enough of Glenn Gerstle. He is, as you see, going to be also as a CSIS senior advisor, and he's going to be on a number of panels and um, working with Glenn on some other issues. But I just want to underscore his exceptional public service and the fact there are a lot of people in this space, but there are very few people who are as, I think, insightful and as nice as Glenn Gerstle. He is legendary for his, I would say, good offices. So it's a pleasure to have him. Uh, With that, I think we're going to give Glenn a couple of minutes to say, Glenn, how do you how do you frame this problem? How do you think we should think about the issue of the social media writ large problem that you've been writing about for a couple of years now? Thanks, Harvey, for that incredibly generous introduction, which probably could have been written by my mother. It's great to see you. It's great to be with the uh, ABA Cyber Task Force. Really an honor to talk to such a group of experts. And I see already uh, a bunch of the little video squares of some friends and colleagues. So hello to everybody. Harvey, as as you said, uh, at the NSA, one of the things I, I focused on very much was the effect of foreign disinformation, which of course bleeds over into domestic disinformation. And that was a, a big focus for us at the NSA back in, uh, starting in 2016 with the presidential elections and continuing on literally through my last days there. So what I'd like to do is talk for maybe, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes or so about some thoughts on online cyber-propelled disinformation and then open it up to questions from you, Harvey, or the MEP task force members. So online disinformation affects our national well-being. My point simply is that it is a far-reaching national security issue, and we have to treat it as such. You know, we tend to think of national security issues as foreign military threats, as North Korean missiles or Russian tanks opposing uh, NATO tanks. But online disinformation, I think, is every bit as significant. Clearly, it doesn't have the same potential for disastrous fatalities as combat. But it is far more likely to become a threat and to be serious than the risk of, say, North Korean missiles, which hopefully is extremely remote. So with this audience, I'm not going to get into too much detail about the nature and causes of cyber-enabled and cyber-propelled disinformation. Uh, You're all familiar with it. But I do want to use the next, say, 10 minutes to underscore the magnitude of the problem and to conclude a little bit with what I think we as lawyers should be thinking about in an effort to mitigate the problem. The problem itself is almost impossible to overstate. Uh, Online disinformation is directly responsible for, frankly, the twin crises America faces today, our political dysfunction and the pandemic. And the pandemic in turn has led to an economic crisis of historic proportions. So if those don't count as national security problems, then I don't know what does. Let's start first with disinformation in the the political context. Uh, It's very clear that an online lie, a falsehood about the nature of mail-in ballots, the fact that that an election produced an outcome that was not to Donald Trump's liking, the fact that there wasn't widespread fraud as confirmed again and again, and the fact that then Vice President Pence didn't have the ability, contrary to the Constitution, to override the Electoral College results. All those were part of online falsehoods that directly led to the storming violent storming of the United States Capitol on January 6th, the first time since 1814 that that building had been violently overrun. 
a remarkable, extraordinary event. And we're still reeling from the consequences of it today. And one of those consequences are that we have a continuation of an extraordinary partisan divide, political dysfunction. It can't possibly be healthy for a democratic republic like ours when some 25, 30%, depending on which poll you believe, um, honestly doubts the legitimacy of the election of Joe Biden. That's just not good for our democracy. Even more pernicious is the long-term effect of, of disinformation. It's insidious and powerful. It, it leads to a pervasive mistrust of institutions generally and government in particular. So it gives us a, a suspicious citizenry that doesn't believe in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The exact antithesis of our democratic republic. We don't want to look like Russia where every citizen knows you can't trust their government. And finally, longer term, it affects our standing in the world. When, when America behaves this way internally due to the online disinformation, it affects our national security in that sense too, which is we don't have the same projection of power, and I don't mean military power, I mean moral power uh, around the world. And that, that in turn affects our ability to have the world run according to norms that we wish to establish for democracy and against tyranny and freedom of the seas and the skies and so on and so forth. I'm sure that on January 6th, as images flashed around the world, uh, and we all saw them of, of the Capitol being overrun, that Vladimir Putin was sitting at his desk with his feet up, grinning from ear to ear, munching popcorn. There couldn't have been a better picture from, for Moscow than that scene. So in short, in some, in the case of elections and political speech, disinformation has a corrosive effect on democracy, leading to mistrust of institutions, cynicism about our leaders, and skepticism about our ability to solve social problems, and ultimately, ultimately raising the specter of authoritarianism as a result, as a reaction to that corrosion. Turning to the public health side of it, consequences of it, there's no question that Obviously, disinformation doesn't cause the pandemic, but it surely exacerbates it. You've all seen those websites that uh, talk about how the various crazy sources of the COVID vaccine, ranging from something that George Soros uh, engineered to uh, the fact that it was engineered by the CIA. It's the sign, it's the, as the mark of the beast, the sign of Satan. Pick whichever outlandish, crazy thought or conspiracy you might think of about the source of the, of the vaccine, and, it, and it's there online. But it has fatal consequences. Fatal consequences in that disinformation, online disinformation, leads directly to some sizable percentage of the American population not wearing masks, notwithstanding all the medical and scientific evidence to the contrary, not social distancing, again, notwithstanding that, that evidence. And then finally, and most ominously for the future and our ability to get to herd immunity, which we all need quickly, is hesitancy about the efficacy of the vaccine. And we've seen everything from celebrities such as Kanye West denouncing the vaccine as a mark of Satan to others saying that the vaccine is an effort by Bill Gates to implant microchips in, uh, in everybody. It has an effect. And we're soon, if we haven't already today, then we will soon reach the point where 500,000 Americans have died from COVID, half a million Americans. That's more than all the combat deaths in World War I, World War II, and all of the world wars during, during the 20th century. Just a remarkable figure. It stands to reason, I can't prove it, but it stands to reason that some appreciable percentage of those deaths could have been avoided 
by wearing masks uh, and social distancing and now ultimately taking more vaccines. And whether that number is several hundred that could have been avoided or a hundred thousand could have been avoided had there not been this online disinformation, that's an outrageous result. So if we have these outrageous results, why don't we do something about it? Why don't we fix online information, online disinformation? Well, obviously, because the problem's hard. If it was easy, we would have fixed it. So there's no one cure to fix this problem. The technology that propels it and sustains it is new, so we don't really have rules and norms and experience in how to deal with this. It's all quite a relatively new phenomenon, at least in historical terms. And America is customarily reactive uh, in terms of its regulation. We wait until a disaster hits in some area, and then we scurry to regulate it and oversee it. We generally take a light regulatory approach, again, unlike Europe, say, for example. The issue itself is politically paralyzing, so it's sort of hard to deal with, a little toxic. And besides, it's hard to see how we can regulate speech anyway. We're very fearful of, of regulating speech, so we sort of just throw up our hands and don't deal with it. And again, there's no one day that we have to fix this. It doesn't need to be fixed today. It should be, but it doesn't need to be fixed today or tomorrow. So it just slides until a crisis occurs. Well, if we need a crisis, I think we've got one. Between the pandemic and the political dysfunction, I think, I think this is the time for us to start to address in a very serious way the problem of online disinformation. And one example to look at, and I'll wrap up here in just four or five minutes, is look at, look at how we dealt with automobiles uh, safety. A new technology that came into, uh, in, into America in the late 19th century and then became a fact of life, a sort of early or mid 20th century, but it took us decades to figure out how to regulate automobile safety with a wide range of, of tools at our disposal, everything from fixing roadway signage to traffic controls to dealing with the automobiles themselves, imposing speed limits, seat belts, mandatory headlights, pick whatever you want. But the point is there was a wide range of things, wide range of matters that we used to address a new technology that had be, quickly became pervasive and ubiquitous in American life, and yet was, although very efficient, what could be more wonderful than a car, was leading to many deaths of pedestrians and drivers. So it took us many decades, complex solution. Same thing is true for online disinformation. Let me just tick off five or six areas where I think we should be thinking about, and then we can, Harvey, you and I can follow up with more, more detailed questions. So there's no one drug that's going, one miracle drug that's going to cure online disinformation. It has multiple causes, and therefore it's going to have multiple solutions. No one of which is going to be dispositive, but putting together all of them, if we take it in an integrated way, again, maybe sort of not the greatest analogy, but maybe the way we dealt with automobile safety, we can affect this in a significant way. We can do something about it. One is the law, obviously relevant to this, this task force. Uh, we can look at tightening laws around election security, prohibiting falsehoods about, say, where polling places are located. We can deal with the anachronism that online political ads are not subject to the exact same regulation that applies to the same ad if it runs on radio or TV. We can address, uh, perhaps tinker with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has been in the news a lot, and use it in some way to help mediate online disinformation, not the sole solution. The technology itself has a big part to play in curbing online disinformation, both in terms of stopping it at its source, and we've seen accounts taken down, and we've seen Facebook and Twitter and others use their algorithms to catch bad information and nip it in its bud, but also to prevent the amplification of it through algorithms that recommend false information. We all know we're attracted to false information. We know that old saying that a lie gets 
halfway around the world before truth even has a chance to put on its shoes. And boy, is that certainly the case with online disinformation. So technology has a role to play. We've seen the big social media platforms in the last few months greatly step up their game in this area, both around election security and, and pandemic disinformation. So technology has a role to play. Uh, finally, international, not finally, almost next to finally, international law, we can do a lot more. Uh, I know it's not a panacea, but we could have an international treaty uh, prohibiting or, or forcing countries to be responsible for online disinformation generated in their country, but having an effect in another country. We can do much more to bring online criminals to justice through an international system who spread it of disinformation. The federal government itself could do much more to get into organized in an integrated way to deal with information. We have a national counterterrorism center. Maybe we should have a national disinformation center. I'm not suggesting a ministry of truth, but we can do a lot better job than the dispersed set of authorities that we have today. And then finally, most importantly, and one that's very near to, to my heart, is improving civic education. We've got a situation where only nine states in the District of Columbia even require a minimum one-year civic education. And it stands to reason that if we have a population where literally one out of four people cannot even name the three-branch government, and over half the people in the United States don't know the terms of service for congressmen and senators, then it's no surprise that they might well believe that former Vice President Pence had the power to overturn the election, and they would be bitterly disappointed if he didn't do what they thought was his duty. So civic education has a big role to play here. Harvey, I've consumed my 15 minutes, so let me stop there. I'm, I suspect you. there might be questions or criticism, and I'll, I'm ready for both. I'll ask one or two questions and open it up to the group. Okay. I think in your security clearance, uh, Putin's preferred refreshment is vodka as opposed to popcorn. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, that's right. Only factual issue, but... And as you know, this committee and Suzanne and Elizabeth and Holly have been quite involved in the civics education prong that they have at CSIS and we're involved. And the committee also is involved with passing a resolution for what you talk about as factual questions concerning election law that should be able to be taken down and dealt with and resolved. But I think one of the, the big questions in the space, Glenn, is that um, is there really any evidence that this flood of disinformation actually is changing minds. There was that recent report that came out of Oxford in the last couple of days talking about the impact that I sent to you. And that has it really had an outcome? We call it cognitive security, how people think about things. Do you think that there has been where you sit enough evidence to demonstrate this is having the impact or are we being kind of uh, empire baited or First Amendment baited? by the response? I think the short answer is yes. Online disinformation does have an effect. It's probably a little hard to quantify. And of course, the beliefs and thoughts we have are the product of many inputs. So it may not be easy to just isolate one source, online disinformation as the sole basis for it. But I think the evidence is pretty clear, if not actually overwhelming, that that online disinformation generally does have a pronounced effect. And let me just give you a few examples. Uh, study after study of some of the polling of why people don't wear masks and don't engage in social distancing directly attributed to information found online about the nature of how COVID spreads and whether masks are, are appropriate and whether social distancing is needed. And, and the source of that is definitely social media. That is very, very clear. 
exactly how many deaths that leads to, I don't know, we can compute it, but it's a number bigger than zero and that alone is unacceptable. In the political sector, Russia, as we all know from that five volume bipartisan report of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, engaged in a widespread integrated effort in 2016 to try to change the minds of people about voting against Hillary Clinton and in favor of Donald Trump. And you say, well, did that work? Well, let me just point out a fascinating statistic that a shift of only 80,000 votes, 8-0, 80,000 votes in three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, would have caused Hillary Clinton to become the president. It was that close. Now, is it possible that Russians' efforts on Facebook mostly and secondarily on Twitter and YouTube caused 80,000 votes to be swayed? I don't know. But out of well in excess of 130 million votes, uh, it's entirely possible. No way to know for sure. Post-election interviews with people, again, showed that many of them were affected by what they read and saw on Facebook. And by the way, we're at a point where three out of four Americans get their news from social media. A fascinating statistic. And for someone like me, as a kid, I got my news from one of three channels. There were only three channels on television, and that's where we got our news every seven o'clock at night from Walter Cronkite. I know I'm dating myself, but it is a big change in a relatively short period of time. Great. I think if people have questions, they can either go to the chat room or go to the reactions button. And just if you go to reactions, it's raise your hand. The question I have, and then we can move to the questions that are, there's one right in the chat box from Chris. You know, you got a front row seat at the NSA to watch the Russian activities. And I think while you were there, Glenn, there was a notion of the fend forward that was put forward by General Nakasone. Uh, can you talk about what you think we can do about that Russian attempt that you've now elaborated given the impact it has? What you, is that enough? Is the fend forward enough? Or would you like to see something more? Sure. And uh, the Russians, along with the Chinese, the North Koreans, and the Iranians are all part of a group of countries uh, overseas that are uh, interested in using online disinformation as one of their tools against America. Russia is probably the most sophisticated at it, and they're the ones that are willing to do so with largely with impunity, in part because it's a little difficult for us to see how to react. We'll talk about the defend forward in a second. But the thing, I, the point I would like to make about Russians' efforts in this regard, and Arvi, you know this, and I see that Suzanne Spaulding is on, and she certainly is deeply familiar with this too, and many others of you are as well, is that the Russian playbook is an integrated one. They don't just simply post one falsehood on Twitter and hope that it takes root. They spend, and at least in the 2016 election and later, spend a fair amount of time cultivating fake falsehood personas with fake followings. I mean, the re fo real followings, but artificially manufactured, often using fake personas of people with pictures that are created by artificial intelligence that don't exist. And they do this in an integrated way. So they put a falsehood out on, on one of their controlled websites, one of their fake websites. They then repeat it on some others. They then have the story about it reported on one of their sites like Russia Today or Sputnik TV. So it gives it some aura of authenticity and corroboration. Then they have more people posting about the stories to make it look further authentic, et cetera, et cetera. So they approach this in an integrated way. The result is it's effective. How effective we could debate, but it has certainly has some pernicious effect on our democracy. What do we do about it? In the 2018 elections, unlike 2016, the FBI, the National Security Agency, the CIA took a position of defending forward, which is 
taking offensive action against the Internet Research Agency and other arms of Putin-controlled online disinformation sources to, in effect, stop them in their tracks. And we were very effective in doing that in 2018 and 2020, to the point where I would say the effect of foreign-generated disinformation around election securities was really minimal. And we need to be very aggressive in that regard. I think we have an open question, which we can talk about later if you want, about how to deal with problems like the solar winds uh, Russian intrusion, um, but certainly defending forward and stopping the disinformation in its tracks at its source is a big part of what we need to do. Not the whole solution, but a big part. I'm going to combine Chris and Ruth's question. Chris raises this issue of the addictive sort of application of disinformation. And that, as you know, one of the big sort of fears for a while has been the concept of a deep fake. So what are your sort of thoughts about the deep fake issue and what its potential uh, power can be, and how should we respond to it? So deep fake videos, the creation of videos that are almost indistinguishable from, or in fact, or in fact are indistinguishable from real ones, is a very serious problem, arguably even more concerning about audio because that's almost undetectable. But putting aside the detectability of it, um, we certainly could see a situation in which, uh, you can imagine a situation in which, say, right days before an election, a fake video comes out showing a candidate uh, doing something inappropriate, saying something inappropriate, whatever. And then while it might be possible to negate it and say it's not true, the damage is done, et cetera. So that, that's, a, that's a genuine concern. How do, we, how do we counteract it? I don't think we're going to be successful in technically analyzing the video and, in, and very quickly declaring it to be a fraud. Means of, of creating the, the deep fakes are too sophisticated generally. So I think what we're going to have to do is contextualize it, which is to say we should get to a position, which we're not now, but technology will help us, get to a position where through artificial intelligence and automation, um, when a deep fake video pops up on a, on a suspicious website days before an election uh, containing inf scurrilous information, it should ring some bells as maybe being fake. And through artificial intelligence, we should be able to very quickly label it as suspect. The same way we do right now with written disinformation, we have organizations like NewsGuard that almost instantaneously will apply a label to some piece of information and say, probably false or might be false. And that would take a step in the right direction. Not a cure, but a step. I'm going to combine uh, Lucy and uh, Bill Denny have sort of raised the issue. We passed a number of resolutions this committee had in the context, and we can send them to you when. Um, I, I've seen a few of them, yes. But one of the issues is you've raised it and danced around a bit. What would be the remedy you see for 230? And do you see a sense of there being any consensus on the Hill to go forward with some form of regulation? I know, as we know, there's been some bills and uh, this can, we have uh, the recitation that we have when David gets online for all the things that are on the Hill currently. Uh, for the cyber legislation, but what do you see as, what would you recommend and how would you uh, encourage Congress to go forward with some resolution in part A and part B is, you know, we've had the UNGGE group working and they seem to be stalled at the international level. So I don't know if you have any suggestions too for what we can do for the government group of experts who are basically are dead in the water for trying to create some international norms in the space. So part A and part B, if you can solve those, go ahead for us. Okay, 
uh, easy questions. Yes and no are the answer. Uh, the, so um, on, on 2.30, again, it's another one of these very complicated issues. Probably a, a good thing at the time it was created at the dawn of the internet, but I think both the left and right agree that 2.30 is outmoded right now. So what's the solution? I'm not sure. I think it's probably one we're going to have to find through trial and error. This is, uh, I don't know that there's an exact place we should draw the line. To me, I don't particularly want to go down the route we've done before, which is punch individual particular exceptions into 230. So we've done that for online pornography and uh, child sex trafficking, et cetera, where there's an exception to the 230 liability shield. That's a very specific one. I think if we create a whole bunch of specific exceptions, like one around election security, one around, I don't know, pick whatever you want, some other air, airline, aircraft, air safety, security, whatever. We're going to result in a, in a patchwork uh, that isn't going to be effective, very hard to enforce. And then the question will be, well, what about this area and what about that area? So I think we need some kind of standard. Is it a higher negligence standard? It's, uh, is it something that intentional disregard? Is it a standard of just simple negligence? Is he know or should have known? I'm not quite sure where the standard is, but I think applying some kind of standard to say to a social media platform that if you knew or reasonably should have known, and we can argue about where the line should be drawn, that this was a false statement and likely to produce significant adverse consequences, that you need to do something about it. And if you don't, perhaps after notice or perhaps just on your own, you could be liable for the, for the damaging consequences. I think something, some kind of standard like that would be appropriate. Um, look, we have that standard already for, for book publishers and television publishers, so it's not like we can't address this in any way. Very quickly on the international uh, standard, you know, I'm hopeful that the Biden administration will resuscitate efforts to see if there can be some steps taken internationally. We all know that international law and, and the lack of enforcement of it is, is a big problem. But just creating international norms, saying we have them, will, will be an incremental improvement. I'm, I'm not kidding myself. I'm not naive enough to think that's going to solve the problem. But, but not having it can't possibly be part of the solution. So uh, the time has always fled with you, Glenn, to stay on time. It's already 2.29. So my last question will be a combo again with uh, comments. Okay. So Suzanne points out, you know, the deep fakes we're worried about is the post-truth world. And if you remember, Rand came out with the famous title, Truth Decay, that we, if this continues, we won't know what reality is. And that's a concern. And one possible solution that Alan mentioned and Claudia has, has raised is under the NDAA from last year, there was supposed to be, quote, a disinformation commission, or do we need a national disinformation center? As you know, Facebook has sent up the guardians, the, the Supreme Court of arbiters of information and saying they don't want the government to step in, but they'll create a bunch of platonic guardians that will be able to dissolve, resolve the takedown issue. What's the Glenn Gerstle solution to this problem of the truth decay? Should there be commissions? Should we leave it to the private sector? Uh, if, we, if you were all powerful, what would you do? Well, I think uh, government has a role to play, but I don't think it ought to be in the, in the role of being the arbiter. I think that's not the American approach. Uh, it's completely inconsistent with our you know, sort of First Amendment principles, and I think we'd meet with a lot of resistance and, and just get us embroiled in, in deep partisan uh, battles. So I think what government can do is set up 
whether it's commissions or boards or whatever, um, to scope the problem, identify it, um, suggest ways government can be better prepared to work with the private sector to, to assist in this area. But I don't think government ought to be the one deciding which website to take down, um, which, which tweet shouldn't be further promoted. Uh, that, I think, is something the private sector needs to do. And I'm not troubled by the fact that there could be a multiplicity of systems and arrangements in the private sector with Facebook having its own set of rules and Twitter having its own and YouTube having a third. That doesn't bother me. But, uh, but again, if we had some consensus around it, perhaps sponsored by a, the government to help uh, create some coalescing of, of standards and values, um, that I think would go a long way. But I think the ultimate decisions uh, need to be in the private sector. Thank you, Glenn. Um, as you know, in your New York article, New York Times article, you call for, quote, a fundamental relationship between government and the private sector must be altered in order, as we go forward, as you sort of hit that point at the end. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I want to thank Claudia and Maureen for allowing Glenn to be able to address the group. Can I just simply say thank you to all of you? I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and and thank you for the work the, the task force is doing. You have an open invitation to this task force, Glenn. So okay, thank you. Thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.